All right, good morning, everybody. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6, and uh, we're going to today be covering verses 5 through 12. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through 12. Now, if you were here or with us last week, um, the title of our lesson was Total Depravity, and we covered verses 1 through 5. And I really, last week, wanted to cover verses 1 through 12. Because 1 through 12 kind of fits with total depravity. And so I, my intention when I started last week was to cover 12 verses. The problem was when I got to verses 5 through 12, there were three words that just kept popping out to me um, that I just thought were really important. And I didn't want to just rush through them. Um, I thought there was enough there that they needed their own lesson. So today I'm going to cover... Uh, these three words, evil, regret, and grace. Evil, regret, and grace. And that's uh, Genesis 6, 5 through 12. Now, if I ask you this morning this question, are words important, what would you say? I mean, words are so important. And how you use words and the words that you choose. Now, even the the world understands this. I mean, you can go out there and, and I did this. I just Googled... Uh, you know, I forget what I Googled, but I was just looking for some uh, quotes about words. And I found a couple like this. A string of words that don't mean much to you may stick with someone else for a lifetime. Or be careful with, with your words. Once they're said, they can only be forgiven, not forgotten. I mean, words are are important, right? And even the world uh, agrees with that. But of course, more important to us is what the Bible says about words. For I'll give you a couple of examples. Proverbs 12, 80, uh not 88, but it's Proverbs 12, 8. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Rash words are like somebody sticking a sword in you. I mean, but, but wise words bring healing. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words are incredibly important. It was, I spent all week, uh, doing this lesson and, this morning I've got a podcast from John Piper that I always listen to, and every day he ans- he asks a- he's asked a question and he answers a question, and I just love to listen to him because he's so wise about the things that he says. And this morning I pop it up, and this is what it said. Somebody wrote in and said, "You know that song, Reckless Love," and they were asking about that song, and he he just did a great job of, of going through that song. And if you listen to that song, there's, I have no problem with that song but one word. <laughs> reckless. Because God is not reckless. Reckless gives you the idea that He don't know what's going to happen. That's what a reckless driver does, right? A reckless driver goes out on the road, he doesn't know what's going to happen, he doesn't care what's going to happen. Well, God's not reckless. Not in that sense, right? And so, so, so John Piper did just a great job of just, just talking about how do we handle situations like that. And if you're interested in that, let me know and I'll send you the, uh, I'll send you the link to that. And it's an it's a excellent, excellent um, uh, way to surmise that. But the point is, the words you choose are important. Right? Think about our children, and, and our children do wrong. They, they need criticism from time to time. But how you criticize means everything. I mean, you can look at them and say, man, you just suck. You're terrible. You're worthless. On the other hand, there's a way to do it, right? And say, you, you know, everybody with me? How you, the words you choose are incredibly, incredibly 
important. So we can all agree on that. And the thing is, none of us gets a pass. We all do this every single day. We, when we t- we're talking to someone, relating to someone, we're constantly trying to choose the right word to say. We have to think about it, right? I mean, it's, it, it's incredibly important to us. In fact, that's why it's fool, it talks about fools are rash with their tongue. Because if you don't think about what you say, you're a fool. Wise people parse their words, choose their words carefully because we know what an impact words uh, can have. Now listen, if that's true for us, how much more true is it for the Bible? Do you not think that when the Holy Spirit inspired men to write, that the Holy Spirit didn't choose His words carefully? I mean, if we are to be wise and choose our words carefully, how much the wisest of the wise would do the exact same thing? So, when I come to the Bible and I study the Bible and I see a word used, sometimes it it pays to think, why did He use that word? Why did the Holy Spirit choose that word? And then consider them very carefully about what He wants us to, to know and learn from that. So today... When I went through these verses, three words just kept popping out at me over and over and over again. And I just thought, man, I can't just, I can't just blow by these. And those three words are evil, regret, and grace. So this morning, we're going to look at these three words that are used in this passage. And we're going to ask, why did the Spirit choose these words? And what is it that He wants us to learn uh, from them? So let's start out with the first one, which is evil. We'll look at, we'll see this one in verse 5, Genesis 6, 5. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, it's obvious that evil is the key word here, right? I mean, if he had said the thoughts of his heart was only kind continually, we got no problem with that. Or the thoughts of his, of his, of his heart was only good continually, we got no problem with that. But the very fact that he says the thoughts of his Uh, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the phrase. That's the key word that gets across what he's trying to say. And now notice in that verse 2, he's trying to explain how bad things were. He looks down and says, man, the wickedness is great. Why, Why is it so great? And this is, he's qualifying it. Because the thoughts, every intention of the thought of their heart was only evil continually. So I want to know, okay, what is it about that word that makes things so bad. So let's ask ourselves, what is evil? What is the definition of, of evil? Now the word, the world, or at least Webster's English Dictionary, or whatever dictionary you don't want to use, describes evil like this. To be morally corrupt, to be wicked, perverted, deviant, degenerate, debased, unprincipled. Those are all synonyms for evil. Now, there's a really interesting thing about evil. We kind of know what it is. We go to the definition, it says to be morally corrupt, to be wicked, to be perverted. But here's the thing about evil. Those definitions imply that there is some standard or norm that we all agree upon, right? For example, if you're going to be a deviant, there has to be a standard that you deviate from, right? If you're going to be perverted, there has to be a norm that you pervert from. We all kind of get that, right? We all, so it's implied in the definition that there's a standard or norm. But here's the, this odd thing. You can go to any dictionary that you want, but nobody ever defines what the standard is. 
you can't find it. It just says to be deviant. Well, deviant from what? To perverted. Okay, but perverted from what? Nobody ever... It just implies that there's a standard or a norm, but nobody ever defines it. Now, there's a reason for that, and the reason for that is because the norm changes basically from day to day, or from culture to culture, or from society to society. For example, you you may go into one society, and what is considered norm or standard can be different from another society. Or, Or in one generation of people, what is considered normal and perverted, or and something might be considered perverted. The next generation is considered normal. We we we're seeing that in our with our own eyes right now in America, right? So nobody defines the storm, the, the norm or the standard because the norm of the standard is constantly changing. So what is the Bible's definition of evil? Which is what we are obviously concerned with. Now the world's definition implies a standard, but it never tells us what it is. Let me tell you, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible implies a standard, and then it tells us exactly what the standard is. And of all things, the standard in the Bible ends up being God Himself. Not a a list of rules or behaviors, but actually God Himself. Now, the passage that explains this probably to me better than any other is Romans chapter 1. I mean, it, it just does an excellent job of explaining this, what evil is. Romans 1, 21 to 32, I'm going to read the whole passage, and I want you to listen to the standard. I want you to listen to what people deviate from. I want you to look at what is perverted in this passage. It says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, and they did not give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, maliceness. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now here's what you see in that verse. Evil proceeds from the rejection of God. See, evil always comes, it always begins, the seed of it is always the rejection of God. See, they don't honor God. They don't acknowledge God. They don't thank God. They don't worship and serve God. They don't obey the truth of God. And because of that, He gives them up. He lets them go their own way. And all those things we think of as evil, ruthless and murder and jealousy and all these things proceed from the seed of rejecting God. Now that is crucially important for us to understand what evil is. You see, what according to the biblical definition, anything that rejects or contradicts the holy nature of God is evil. I, let me give you some examples. The Bible says that God is love, right? We, we all know that. So any so to be unloving is to reject that characteristic of God. Therefore, to be unloving would be evil. 
Not because somebody defines unloving as evil, because it rejects God. Everybody with me? Think about other things. God's mercy and His kindness and His, and His faithfulness and, and, and all of these things. Any thought or behavior that rejects those characteristics of God qualifies in, in biblical terms to be evil or constitute evil. That's why when you get to the Bible, you see scriptures like this. No one is good except God alone. See, He's the standard. He's the norm. Everybody else deviates from that standard. He is the standard. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. Of the, where's the standard? It's God. Romans 14.23, one of the most profound statements in the Bible, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Think about that for a minute. You can, you can have a life, and, and, and in that life you can do everything right, and what we think is right. You can, you can be faithful to your spouse, never cheat on them. You can pay your taxes. You can be kind to people. You can feed the hungry. You can uh, clothe the naked. You can vi- visit the sick. You can visit the prisoner. But yet, the fact is, if you don't do that out of faith, if you do it for some other reason, all of that is what? Sin. It's all sin. Why? Because is it bad stuff? No, because it's done rejecting God. You reject God and say, I don't need to do it. I'll do it my way. I'll earn my way in. And he says, everything you do is sin. Everything you do is evil. Why? Because it's ungodlike. It's, it's reje- it begins with the rejection of God. That's evil. See, when you study the, the evil in the Bible, you find a definition that goes much further than Webster's Dictionary. J.P. Moreland says this, evil is a lack of goodness. Well, God alone is good. Evil is a lack of God. It's a rejection of God. It's a, to not acknowledge God. See, he says this, you can have good without evil, but you cannot have evil without good. And he's right, because without, without, there's no such thing as evil if we don't have a standard. And the standard, according to the Bible, is God. Now, you may say to me this morning, well, what's your point? That's all good and all, all that. What's your point? Here's what I want you to understand about the pre-flood. God looks down and says, man, every thought of theirs is evil. Now, now they are, they're raping and they're murdering and they're plundering and they're killing and they're, I mean, it's, it's a bad situation. But first and foremost, the reason they're evil is because they have rejected God. See, that's the core of the problem, not the, not the acts. Remember what we said last week? God looks at their heart. God looks beyond the, the good acts and He looks beyond the bad acts and He looks at our heart. And when He looked at their heart, He said, every thought of theirs is evil. That's the core of the issue. Let's read that verse again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil. That means it was ungodlike. It was God-rejecting continually. I mean, there's nothing in them that even thought about God, even considered what, might, what God might want us to do. That's what made them evil, not the actual acts. That, that just came out of that. Everybody with me? See, God always looks at the heart. And once again, when He looked inside these people, what He saw, He says, these aren't good people. These aren't... See, the world says we're all... If you go out and you talk to the world, this is what they'll say. We're, people are basically good. How many times have we heard that in our life? People are basically... See, that's the, the modern... Here's the modern definition of sin. 
that people are basically good and noble. We're just not perfect. How many times have we heard that? Well, I'm not perfect. Right? And if we can just change their circumstances, if we can just get them enough education, if we can just get them enough money and get them out of their circumstances, they'll show themselves to be noble people. See, that's not what the Bible says at all. See, the Bible says your behavior is just a symptom of a bigger issue. And the bigger issue is inside of you. It's at your core. It's at your heart. And the problem is, at your core and at your heart, you are a God-rejecter. That's what makes you evil. You are a God-rejecter. See, we could reread that. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart rejects God continually. That's what evil is according to the Bible. It's a move away from God. It's a rejection of God. And all the behaviors just come out of that. Mark seven fourteen through 15 Jesus said this, something we're very familiar with. When He called everybody to Himself, He said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. I can almost see Jesus literally or, 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 or figuratively putting His hands on their face and saying, Listen to me. Understand what I'm about to say to you. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. That's his problem. It's his heart. Right? That's the issue with us. It's not, if you, see, the world says change their circumstances and they'll show themselves to be noble. That is a, boy, it is so wrong. It is, it, and that's why we've got more money than we ever, we've ever had. We've got more technology than we ever had. And man just goes more debased and more debased and more debased and more debased every day that goes by because we're doing nothing to change the inside. So God looks into the heart of every man, every woman, and he sees that every image, every thought, every, every ideology, even the religious stuff that's in his mind is evil continually in the sense that God himself is not part of it. That's the problem. Now see, you need to think about, that's how it was then, how is it today? How is it today? Aren't we just rejecting, isn't society just rejecting God more and more every day? I don't care, forget for a second how they act. Their core problem is they're rejecting God. The evil comes out of that because God turns them over and says, okay, that's what you want, have it. Go have at it. See where this leads you. Go read Woman's 1 and study that. The second word we're going to look at is the word regret. Verses 6 through 7. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Back in the 90s, there was a big um, uh, dispute or big uproar in religious circles about a, uh, an idea, uh, a theology called open theism. Open theism is the idea that God does not know the future. In other words, think about it this way. If you have a free will, if your will is really free, then in theory, God has no control over you. You can do whatever you want to do. So, I got up this morning, I could have, I could have wore beige socks or brown. God had no idea what I was going to do. I made that choice. That's open theism. The idea that God doesn't know what you're going to do this afternoon. Doesn't know. So he's constantly reacting to your Choices. That's open theism. Now, 
again, it's and it's all because of our free will. We are talking about all the time. Men's got free will. Men's got free will. So God's knowledge of the future, therefore, must be conditional upon your actions. In other words, we say he's omniscient. That means open theism says, well, he knows everything he can know, but he does not know what you will do in the future. And because he doesn't know what you will do in the future, therefore he doesn't know the future. That's open theism. Now, what is the evidence they use in the Bible for that theology? Well, the reason I bring it up is because one of the scriptures that they use is Genesis 6.6. And the Lord regretted. He was sorry. In fact, the King James, if you got a King James, says the Lord repented that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. And people say, see that? He was sorry. He regretted. He repented. Another one they use is Jonah 3.10. Remember, God says, man, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. That's a sinful city. I'm going to go destroy that city. And then uh, Jonah finally goes after a, a big to-do. He goes and preaches to them, and they, they're, they're sorry. They repent. And Jonah 3.10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented, or God repented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He didn't do it. In other words, He changed His mind. Another one is 1 Samuel 15.11, God has made Saul king. And then Saul goes off the rails and does a bunch of stuff he shouldn't do. And God says this in 1 Samuel 15, 11, I regret, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commands. So people will point and say, see, he, he, he made, God made a mistake. He didn't know what Saul was going to do. And now he's sorry, he regrets. Now, Those verses seem to indicate that God was surprised, that something happened that he didn't understand. Um, Therefore, people will say, well, see, he didn't, he didn't know. Now listen, I've said this over and over. Let me say it one more time. If you have an interpretation of a verse or a passage that contradicts something else in the Bible, your interpretation is wrong. The Bible does not contradict itself. It, It is, it, it is, it is spot on. So if I have a, if, if I look at a verse, I can say, well, God must not have known, and it contradicts other things in the Bible, then I need to look at another interpretation. And let me tell you, for, for someone to interpret Genesis 6, 6 that way, that God didn't know that man was going to get so bad, the problem is you've got huge contradictions with other parts of the Bible. For example, there are multiple scriptures in the Bible that teach us that absolutely God knows the future. Psalm 139.4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, you already know it. Even before the word is said, comes out of my mouth, he already knows what I'm going to say. Psalm 139.16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. He already knew. He knows, he knows, he knows exactly what I'm going to do. He knows how many days I'm going to live. He already knows the exact day I'm going to die. I cannot change that. He knows. And think about this. What about all the prophecies in the Old Testament? A lot of the prophecies depend on men and women doing certain things. How could God predict things if He doesn't know what men are going to do? Let me give you an example. Psalms 22:18. Probably written a thousand years before Jesus Christ. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. A thousand years go by, and there's one day on Calvary, some soldiers are sitting there, and Jesus is nailed on the cross above them, and, and they're, they're casting lots for his clothing. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five. Are you telling me God didn't know what those soldiers were going to do? 
Did he just guess? Was that just a good guess? Of course it's not. God knows exactly what they're, they're going to do. Absolutely, he knows the future. And let me say this. Let's be thankful that he knows the future, but let's be even more thankful that he goes beyond that. Because if God only knows the future, how does he control anything? And, and how, for example, how could he guarantee my salvation? If he only knows the future, but he has no control over it. See, the Bible goes further and says not only does he know the future, he directs the future. Uh, Proverbs 16.9, a man's heart plans his way, but it's the Lord that determines his steps. Acts 4, 27 through 28, Peter is preaching, he says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The things that Pontius Pilate did, the things that Herod did, God directed those things. God knew exactly what was going to happen. Not only didn't just know, He ordained it to happen. He directed it to happen. They were doing things that had been predestined. See, the Bible teaches that over and over again. Hard for us to understand, but again, He's, he's God. And one more thing, God only, not only knows the future, and God not only directs the future, God doesn't change His mind either. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that He should lie, or the Son of Man that he should change his mind. James 1.17 from the New Testament, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or even a shadow of turning. I love that. You, his shadow doesn't even move. I mean, when he, makes, I mean he, when he decides something, he's, he's, he's going. And he's not even a shadow, even a thought of changing direction. So based on all those verses... What that teaches us is God doesn't regret like we do. See, we regret... How many of you here have ever regretted anything? Well, everybody, right? See, we regret... Because we make a decision and something happens that we didn't foresee. And, and we regret... In other words, I wish I could go back and do that again, right? That, that's what we mean. Boy, I, I shouldn't have done that. I wish I could go back and do it all over Again, see, God doesn't regret like that. God knows the future. He directs the future. He doesn't change. So He cannot regret the way that we regret. So let's look at that verse again. And the Lord regretted. He was sorry that He made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So what is it telling us here? Well, I want to make two points about that verse. This is an example, and this is a big word. But this is an example of something called anthropopathic speech. That is a really big word. And what that means, that is a figure of speech where we assign thoughts and feelings, human thoughts and human feelings to God. That's what anthropopathic speech. And it's done to help us understand God, right? Because we communicate in English. So when we talk about God, we have to talk about Him in ways that we understand. Words in our language. Everybody with me? But the fact is, be honest, there's no way our human words could ever describe Him. There's no way our human, piddle human words that we have could ever describe a complex God such as He is. So we use words like regret and sorry. The Holy Spirit uses words like that because those are the words we understand. But the fact is, we have to be very careful. It's an example of anthropopathic speech. 
And when those kind of words are used, we have to be very careful not to take it too far. To think that God is exactly like us. That God thinks exactly like us. That God feels exactly like us. See, there's something we always have to keep in mind. And that is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So, so we do our best to describe Him, to understand Him. But the fact is, we always have to keep in mind, He is so much higher than us that we can never really understand Him. We can never really think the way He thinks or, or feel the way he, he feels. So I believe that God is capable... Of, of regretting an act, for example, creating mankind, I regret I did that, but at the same time, he would do it all over again because he ordained it, he controlled it. Let me, we see examples of this. Let me give you an example and see if this, see if this helps you. Let's say your child is disobedient in some way and you, you spank them, right? Now, when you do that, I don't know about you, but when I would spank my children, I regretted spanking them. I felt sorry Spanking them. Now, if, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do the same thing. Because the situation called for it. But at the same time, I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't happy that it happened. I wasn't, everybody with me? Now, some of you might enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it. I'm not like that. Right? See, in, in some way, you can, you can be doing the right thing. Something that you would approve and do all over again. But that doesn't mean you're not sorry you had to do it. That doesn't mean you don't regret that you had to do it. Now, if that combination is possible for you and I as human beings, how much more a complex God of creation is capable of much more complex feelings and emotions? Are you with me? We can't take ours too too far. So for us, we can use words like regret and sorrow... And that doesn't mean that we would automatically do it all over again a different way. Okay? And it certainly doesn't mean that God would do it a different way. It certainly doesn't mean that God didn't know what was happening. It certainly doesn't mean that God did not ordain what had happened. So for God to say, I feel sorry that I made mankind, is not the same thing as saying, boy, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't do it. He would do it. He would do exactly the same thing all over again because he doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't change his mind. Now that brings us to the third word in our trilogy today and that word is grace. I want to pause here for one second and ask a question. If the story stopped right here and God just destroyed the earth, what would be the overriding lesson, would you say, so far? In this, in, in, in the, in what we've come to so far. Well, to me, the overriding lesson is what we would call the doctrine of sin. That the human heart in its natural condition is profoundly wicked. It is profoundly evil. It is profoundly God rejecting. That's been the lesson so far, right? Now, we're going to come to the flood here starting next week and we're going to get into Noah's Ark. And some people may say, well, that's how it was before the flood. People were bad and, and evil and, and all of that. But after the flood, we all come from Noah. And Noah is a good man and a righteous man. 
He wasn't condemned with everybody else. So things are different after the flood. Well, let me, I want to show you three roadblocks to that view. That somehow mankind after the flood was different than mankind before the flood. I want to show you three roadblocks. The first one we'll come to in a few weeks in chapter 8. This is God's statement after the flood. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God makes that statement after the flood. Everybody see that? God says, after the flood, from the very time a child is born, the intention of their heart is what? Evil. It's God rejecting. They, they reject God from a young person. That, that's how... They, see, see, God is not naive enough to think that somehow, after the flood, mankind has changed. He understands completely that, that, that we haven't changed at all. He, he, so he's not naive like that. He knows Noah is a sinner. He knows Noah's sons and their wives and, and Noah's wife. He knows they're all sinners. He gets all that. He knows mankind's condition hasn't changed. And by the way, this will be affirmed in Genesis 9 with Noah himself when we get there. Noah 9, 20-24. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and he got drunk and he lay uncovered. That means he lay naked in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse be Canaan. I mean, it just, it, it, right after the flood, guess what happens? It just, starts, it just starts going downhill. See, just like Adam kind of led his sons into sin, he set the way for his own sons. Noah does the exact same thing. Gets drunk, lays in his tent naked and... And that day, that was a bad thing for your sons to see you like that. See, both of them just opened the doors for their families to sin. Nothing's changed. Nothing, nothing has changed. Before the flood, human nature is corrupt. After the flood, human nature is corrupt. But here's a third roadblock to, for, for people that might think, well, after the flood, things are different. And that is found in today's verse, uh, Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor... The King James uses the word grace. It's the exact same word in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's what I want you to see. Noah is not without sin. He's not an exception to the doctrine of sin. He's not an exception to the rule that some, somehow he's this great man who's never sinned and God's going to start all over with him. No, he's just like you and me. The reason he is spared is not because he's some kind of special person. The reason he's spared is because he, founds, he finds grace in the eyes of God. Let's read verses 9 through 10, and it describes Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So like Enoch, Noah is described as walking with God. Again, this is a picture of, of fellowship, a picture of, of intimacy. The rest of the world is rejecting God. That's what evil means. They, they've rejected him. Noah alone is, is preserving God's name. He's calling upon God. He's looking to God. He's walking with God. He's getting to know God. But blameless and righteous in the Old Testament doesn't mean sinless. He wasn't sinless. Don't, let's, let's make sure we understand that, that he was a sinner. 
See, in the Old Testament, a righteous man or a blameless man is one who has rejected sin, turned to God, and does his best to walk in obedience. They are called blameless men and righteous men. But see, we know Noah's righteousness is not coming from behavior, the way he acts. It's coming from a faith inside of him, and we know this because of the New Testament. Hebrews eleven seven. Listen to this. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, and he became an heir, read this with me, of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, Noah is a righteous man, not because he's walking around adhering to some standard of behavior. He's a righteous man because he's believing the words of God. Whatever God is telling him, he's putting his trust in God. He's believing. And because he did that, he became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's See, people ask this question all the time. How were people saved in the Old Testament? They're saved exactly the way people in the New Testament are saved, by grace through faith. By grace through faith. Nothing has changed. The people in the Old Testament look forward to the coming of Jesus. Now we look back to the coming of Jesus. What did I tell you a few weeks ago? That song said in the Old Testament we were saved on credit. Now we're saved on debit. The Old Testament looked forward to what He would do. We look back to what He has done. But people in the Old Testament are saved exactly the way we are, by grace, through faith. That's how Noah was saved. See, he didn't know about the Messiah. He didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about uh, the resurrection. He didn't know all that. But he heard God's words in his day, and he believed. And that is the definition of faith. And God counted his faith as sufficient and gave him grace and righteousness. So today we've looked at three words, evil, regret, and grace. And by the way, these are three words which basically describe the pre-flood. It basically describes that 1,656 years. First thing we saw was evil. The wickedness of man is great. His heart is just God-rejecting continually. God's patience runs out. And he is sorry, he regrets that he's made man and he brings judgment. But even in the judgment, God does not surrender his plan of redemption. He, does, he, he's not, he, he, doesn't, he, he, he had a purpose in creating man and he's not sorry about that. So he doesn't abandon his plan. God has created man in his image and his aim has always been that man would fill the earth with the glory of God. So he preserves one righteous man and his family to start all over again. Next week, we turn to um, Noah's Ark. I got the verse wrong. I'm sorry about that. We'll begin reading in verse 13 through the rest of, the, of Genesis chapter 6. And we'll start talking about... Got some really interesting stuff coming up, right? How did he get all them animals on that one boat? How big was that thing? How many people died? All kinds of questions that people got about the flood, and we're going to attempt to answer uh, over the next few weeks as many of those as we, um, as we can. Let's pray. Father.